Paul's letter to Titus. If you've been here the last few weeks, you know we've been studying through Titus in our walk through the entire Bible. And uh, we've covered the book in verse-by-verse teaching, but there is something incredibly significant that we're going to consider and look at this morning. It really is the heart of this letter. So verse 1 of the letter of Paul to Titus, chapter 1, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God, and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago, but at the proper time manifested even His Word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. Skip to chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed, and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession, zealous for good deeds. Chapter 3. Verse 4, But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs through the hope of eternal life. Father, we just ask that You'll bless the teaching of Your Word this morning. Lord, we ask that Your Spirit will give us knowledge and revelation in our minds and in our hearts and an understanding that changes us, Lord, and makes us more like You. To Your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask you to think this morning. So put on your thinking caps or your thinking yarmulkes if that's what you'd like to wear this morning. The most fundamental doctrine of the Christian faith is that God exists. And that He has revealed Himself to us in Jesus Christ. Now this is the basis of the Gospel itself. It comes back to that fundamental understanding. According to the Pew Research Center, 89% of Americans still say they believe in God. However... 56% now say belief in God is unnecessary for good morals. Now it was just, in 2011 it was 49%. So now we have crossed that the majority of Americans say you don't need to believe in God to have good morals and values. And you might think about your response to that statement. For my response, we need to go back to the late 18th century. So journey back with me to 1785. A young public servant gave his heart to Jesus. And it radically changed his life. And radically changed Great Britain and ultimately the world. His name was William Wilberforce. Uh, Many of you have heard the name William Wilberforce. Perhaps you've seen the movie Amazing Grace. If you haven't, you need to get the DVD and watch it. Outstanding movie. 
about how William Wilberforce, a British member of parliament from 1784 to 1812, championed the Slave Trade Act. It took him over 20 years to get that act ultimately passed. And we're worried about things happening in the first year of the Trump administration. You know, I mean, it's amazing. 20 years of work. And this young public servant, again, he, he became a member of Parliament in 1784, gave his life to Jesus in 1785. And it completely changed his trajectory. William Wilberforce wrote one book, just one in his lifetime, and here's the title. A practical view of the prevailing religious system in the higher and middle classes of this country contrasted with real Christianity. They had a greater attention span back then, I think. I want to read you a quote, and this is where you really have to think and listen. Because this is hard reading. This book is hard reading to get through. Part of it is just the the structure of the language, but listen carefully to what he said. And this is all the way back to the turn of the 1700s to the 1800s. He wrote, toward the close of the last century, that's the 18th century, the divines of the established church began to run into an error. They professed to make it their chief object to inculcate or to instill the moral and practical precepts of Christianity, which they conceived to have been before too much neglected, but without sufficiently maintaining or often even without justly laying the ground foundation of a sinner's acceptance with God, or pointing out how the practical precepts of Christianity grow out of her peculiar doctrines and are inseparably connected with them. Now pause right there, there's more to the quote, but I remind you, 56% of Americans now say belief in God is unnecessary for good morals. And he says, reading on, by this fatal error, the very genius and essential nature of Christianity was imperceptibly changed. In this way, the fatal habit of considering Christian morals as distinct from Christian doctrines insensibly gained strength. Thus, the peculiar doctrines of Christianity went more and more out of sight. And as might naturally have been expected, the moral system itself also, being robbed of that which should have supplied it with life and nutriment, began to wither and decay. At length, in our own days, these peculiar doctrines have almost all together vanished from view. Even in the greater number of our sermons, scarcely any traces of them are to be found. Wow. Now that gives me great hope. Because that was in the early 1800s. That was in the days before Charles Haddon Spurgeon. You know, before D.L. Moody and before some of the great revivals that, that happened in Britain and, and in the United States even following that. But it reminds me that at various times throughout history and especially throughout the 2,000 years of the church age, we have had a problem and that is trying to separate out doctrine from morality. And it tends to happen when the church focuses so much on Christian living that it departs from Christian doctrine. Let me put it to you this way. The strength of morality is the doctrine which supplies it. 
If you take away the doctrine, the morality itself has no framework on which to stand. Nothing to hold it secure. The doctrines are the basis. Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians 3.11 tells us, is the foundation. Everything else is built upon Him. And if you take away, if you remove, as Wilberforce said, the peculiar doctrines of Christianity, you remove all strength on which to hang the moral standards and the values and the ethics that we ascribe to. Like the heart to the body, if you damage or attack or remove the doctrine, the morality itself will die. And we see this happening in our culture. Where the church has, in many cases, dismissed doctrine in favor of Christian Learning or in favor of Christian behavior or Christian living. I mean, look at the bookshelves in a Christian bookstore and tell me which shelves are larger and more fitted out. The Christian living section and the fiction section or the doctrine section. That should tell you what we're talking about here. It's like the human heart. Now, those of you who know basic biology understand this. The heart has four chambers. Two small upper chambers, the atria, and two larger lower chambers, the ventricles. And the way it works, again, this is very basic, is that the right atrium receives oxygen, poor blood from the body, used up blood, and sends it into the right ventricle, which then sends it into the lungs for oxygenation. And then once oxygenated, it comes back into the left left atrium and on into the left ventricle and then is sent back out, oxygenated, to the body. Did I get that right, Mark? Good. In Paul's letter to Titus here, we have a letter that is packed with morality and behavioral principles. One of the most practical letters, perhaps in the entire Bible, especially in the entire New Testament, that teaches Christian living and Christian discipleship and moral behavior. But within this letter, we have the heart. We have an atria and two ventricles, as it were, that strengthen our morality. It is the heart that gives strength to the ethics in this teaching. You could say it this way. We come to the letter weak and low on moral strength and uncertain perhaps in changing times. We depart from the heart oxygenated, strengthened in Christian morality, assured by the doctrines of, get this, the doctrines of the hope of eternal life. Which I told you last week is the substance of Titus. The hope of eternal life. He says that phrase twice. In this three chapter letter. And it is the basis of all the morality. Without the hope of eternal life. And without the profound doctrines that are written in this letter. All of the moral principles will fall apart on their own. They cannot stand. So I want to look at it this way as we consider the doctrines of this letter. We've already read them this morning. We're going to look at all of them again. And make our way through them. We'll begin in the atrium. Which is the... the, Introduction or the greeting, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Then we will move into the right ventricle, chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. And we will finish in the left ventricle, chapter 3, verses 4 through 7. And we'll use that kind of as our outline through the letter. So here we go, the atrium, chapter 1 again. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those 
chosen of God, and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness, in the hope of eternal life. Again, the focal point is the hope of eternal life. That is the focal point of the doctrinal teaching. Not only of the letter, but of the gospel, of the church. And of our very lives, the hope of eternal life. Last week we read Ecclesiastes 3.11 that says God has set eternity in their heart, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. Meaning that God has placed the sense of eternity, the hint of the heavenly, in our hearts in such a way that we would desire to find out. He has left clues for us. Our own sensibility... The hope of eternal life. This is not a new thing. This is something God has wanted us to be aware of and know so badly that He dropped hints into creation, into the human heart. And early on, one of the largest hints that He left us, or clues to this ongoing eternity, He dropped it into a people. The people of Israel. What does that have to do with the greeting? Well, they're right there. Listen again. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of those chosen of God. Now stay with me on this. Perhaps you've read this for the faith of those chosen of God. Well, that's us. That's the church. He's talking to Christians. And in a way, you could say that he is. But chosen here, the chosen of God, the word is electos in the Greek, and it means the elect. Now there's a large part of the church that says the elect is the church. Again, the elect is only the church. I I don't have a problem with that unless they mean by saying that that the church replaces Israel. Because Israel throughout the Hebrew Scriptures is the elect, are the chosen of God. And on into the New Testament, when you see the phrase elect, the vast majority of the time it is talking about Israel. The chosen people are no less chosen now than they were then. They remain the chosen people of God. There remains promises that God has made to Israel that must stand or God is a liar. And we know He is not. The chosen, the elect. Paul says, I'm writing this. I'm writing for the faith of those chosen of God. The elect is only the church in so much as we have been grafted in to the chosen ones, that is Israel. It is important to understand this as a reference to Israel for a couple of reasons. Number one, get this, Paul is appealing to the faith of his fathers. When he says, for the faith of those chosen to God, the word for is kata in the Greek, and it means down from Or according to. According to the faith of those chosen of God. Down from the faith of those chosen of God. Where do we think our Christian faith came from? Do we believe that it just sprang up one day? In the first century? group of apostles said, hey, let's make Jesus into a church. Do we not realize and recognize Jesus Himself as a Jew? Jesus Himself as the fulfillment of every Messianic prophecy given to Israel, over 300 of them in the Hebrew Scriptures, related to His first coming. And Messiah came in the person of Jesus Christ. And our roots are deep in the soil of Israel. 
In fact, Jesus Himself said in Matthew chapter 8, verse 11, I say to you that many will come from east and west and will recline with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of God. He says in Matthew 22.32, regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. And so even Jesus there proclaiming God as the Father, as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Israel, And what Paul is saying in this greeting is that his servitude to God is grounded and rooted down from according to the faith of the chosen ones, to the faith of his father's Israel. He says going on in verse 2, "...in the hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie promised long ages ago." God can't lie about this. In fact, God can't lie at all. Anyone ever ask the question, is there anything God can't do? Yes, He can't lie. He must tell the truth. And in telling the truth, He must follow through with what He promises to do. Numbers 23.19 says, God is not a man that He should lie, nor a son of man that He should repent. Has He said and will He not do it? Or has He spoken and will He not make it good? 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 29. The glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind. He's not a man that he should change his mind. Or over in Hebrews chapter 6, one of my favorite verses in Scripture. Verse 16 says, For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. Paul is saying, or the Hebrew writer is saying, men swear by someone greater, and then they give an oath. And he says, in the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us. God has by two things guaranteed He cannot lie. What two things? His promise and His person. He swore on Himself, there is no one greater. He swore on His own name. He said, by my name and by my promise, I will not lie, I will follow through, and our God has promised us the hope of eternal life. Guaranteed that this is a real thing, that this is the opportunity out before us, and that He can make it happen. Here's just a real quick taste of eternity promised from long ago. Isaiah chapter 60 verse 19. No longer will you have the sun for light by day, nor for brightness will the moon give you light. But you will have the Lord for an everlasting light. And your God for your glory. Your sun will no longer set, nor will your moon wane. For you will have the Lord for an everlasting light, and the days of your mourning will be over. Revelation 22 verse 5, it it supports this by saying there will no longer be night. They will not have need of the light of a lamp or the light of the sun because the Lord God will illumine them and they will reign forever and ever the promise of eternal life. 
And it's marvelous. And we could, I, I had dozens of scriptures that I had jotted down for this. And to save time, I'm not reading into all of them, but if you will just go through and look up eternity and eternal life and forever and heaven and what the Bible has to say about it, it is absolutely astounding and sure. That, that sense of eternity that's in your heart is there because eternity is real. And God has made a way for us to live forever with Him. The hope of eternal life. And it is the, it's the great hope that is supported by that basic fundamental reality that God exists and has revealed Himself to us in Jesus Christ. Now, this promise made to and through Israel is an intriguing starting point for the letter. Specifically because this letter landed on the Isle of Crete. What does that have to do with anything? It's the second reason, and get this, it's important to recognize that the elect here, the chosen of God, are in fact Israel. Here's the second reason. Not only does it say that it's the faith that is coming down from or according to those chosen of God, but Crete, the recipients of this letter. This is just so cool. I love stuff like this. Crete once had a different name. Well, what was the original name? Kaftor. Kaftor. C-A-P-H-T-O-R. Kaftor. The Old Testament uses that name for Crete, for this island. Amos chapter 9, verse 7. Have I not brought up Israel from the land of Egypt and the Philistines from Kaftor? Do you understand what's going on here? This letter was sent to Kaftor, was sent to Crete, home of the ancient Philistines. That island, that large southern island... And what we understand about the Philistines who who found their way across, they were maritime people, they sailed across, seafaring people, from Crete, coming across and landing on the western shores of the Mediterranean, Gaza, today. And they were the thorn in the side of Israel for decades, if not centuries. They were the ones, the problem for Israel. Public enemy number one, Goliath and company, the Philistines. And they sailed across. This letter is now going to Philistine territory. Now some of you are looking at me like, big deal. I'll tell you why it's a big deal. But I do want to point out to you, as I often have in the past, that those who say the present-day Palestinians are the ancient Philistines cannot be. The present-day Palestinians are Arabic, and the ancient Philistines were European. Not even the same people group. Because they came from Kaftor, as the Bible tells us, and sailed over and settled there on the western coast of Israel. So why is that a big deal? Listen, Israel was first offered and first heard about and first brought to us then the hope of eternal life. And by, for, and according to that faith that came through Israel, Paul, the apostle, was sent out to the Gentiles, but not just to the Gentiles, to the Cretans, a people whose own ancestors were the number one enemy of Israel. That's just astounding to me. And what we see having happened here is that the gospel now has made its way all the way to the very roots of the enemies of the chosen people. That's how amazing the gospel is. To those most set against God and His plan, the gospel has now arrived. It has come to Crete. 
Doesn't it always seem this way? That, that the gospel comes down to those who rebel and fight against the very hope that they need until they accept it. In fact, if you look over in chapter 3, verse 2, Paul says, Malign no one, be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For, for, we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. The wonder is that the hope of eternal life handed down through the faith of the Jews now landed on Kaftor, the one-time home of the Philistines. The gospel goes to the very ones who would reject it in the first place. That's, that's the gospel. It is to the most rebellious that this message has been sent out. And it's the most rebellious that once changed, once redeemed, once restored, become the most passionate for those who are still in rebellion. And so the letter arrived at Crete. Back in chapter 1, verse 3, but at the proper time manifested His Word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. How was His Word manifested? In the man, Jesus Christ. Seen and made real. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's the atrium. We come into the atrium a little weakened, a little concerned, maybe a little uncertain, and and we need the oxygenation of the gospel of truth. And now we have a sense of where it came from, but go down now into the first ventricle, verse 11 of chapter 2, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession, zealous for good deeds. Gordon Fee tells us that in the Greek text, all of verses 11-14 through form a single sentence, of which the grace of God stands as the grammatical subject. This is all about the grace of God. So as we come into the right ventricle of this great doctrine, the doctrine is the doctrine of grace. The grace of God promised to us. And in verse 11 again, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Listen, you don't go get it. You don't go out and get yourself saved. No, salvation was brought to us. The grace of God appeared, bringing salvation The grace of God, personified again in Christ Jesus, came to you, came to me to bring the hope of eternal salvation. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 26 says, At the consummation of the ages, He has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. The cross is the consummation of the ages. It is the hinge of history. It's the heart valve, if you will, that floods the suffocating despair with the hope of eternal life. Salvation has come to you and to me. 
Hebrews 9.27 Inasmuch as it was appointed for men to die once and after this judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without sin to those who eagerly await Him. Without sin. The first time, He bore the sin. The second time, there will not be a spot of sin to be found in His glorious appearing. As He comes to rule and to reign wonderfully. But Paul says there's a way to do this. That is, a way to eagerly await Him. Let me ask you all a question. Did any of you sink into disappointment when Jesus did not arrive on the day of trumpets? What my friend Trent called the night of horns. Did, did any of you on that eve, and this was back in September, we, we actually enjoyed Yom Teruah. We had a little day of trumpet celebration here and we talked about what Yom Teruah is and, and the trumpet shall, shall sound and looked a little bit at the, at the rapture of the church and how that's connected and all those things and this feast of Israel. Had a marvelous time tooting little plastic horns out in the parking lot. <laughs> Sang Amazing Grace in what I felt was a profound moment of worship. And Jesus did not come. (laughs) I'm like, Lord, do you know what we spent on those plastic shofars? (laughs) Any of you, the next morning, wake up and just go, man. Listen, (laughs) we have the hope of eternal life. And hope does not disappoint. Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Romans chapter 5 verse 5. What I'm saying is simply this. The hope of eternal life assures us that salvation is coming. Whether it comes today or tomorrow or next year or in 40 years really is beside the point. Salvation is coming. That is the great hope of the follower of Jesus. And Jesus brought the salvation And he did so, note this, pas anthropos. Pas anthropos. That is, to all men. Pas is the Greek word that means all. Everyone. Salvation was brought to this earth for every last person. Pas anthropos. All humanity. All men, all women. And in fact, John says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, He Himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Pas anthropos. Wait a minute, Rick, are you saying that salvation is universal? No. Not everyone gets saved. But everyone gets invited. Not everyone will be saved. But everyone has the opportunity to be saved. Such is the grace of God that He brought to us. The invitation to salvation goes out to everyone. It goes out to you this morning if you're not among the saved. It's yours today. The invitation is in your hands. What do you do with it? Will you respond to it? Now, there are three things in this chamber of the heart to understand about the grace of God. The first one is how to accept it. The offer has gone out to all people. How do you accept it? Verse 12. 
instructing us, teaching us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. I have to confess something to you. Back when I first ran across Titus 2.13, I also read Titus 2.12, and I didn't like it. I didn't like the whole idea of, wait, i got to live sensibly? Well, that just runs against the grain of my entire being. <laughs> i got to live righteously and godly, and I need to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and it just sounds so... But, but, you know, verse 13, hey, we're looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of a great God and Savior Christ Jesus. Yeah, so I would always just skip over verse 12. <laughs> you can go back and listen. When I quoted this verse through the early years of the Bridge Fellowship, I never quoted verse 12. I didn't want you to see it just yet. <laughs> let's get saved, let's get rolling, and then we'll talk about righteousness. You know, we'll get back to that. Listen, I was so wrong. This is vital instruction that comes hand in hand with the gospel. We have the doctrine of our salvation that is brought to us by Jesus Christ. And our moral response must be verse 12. Otherwise, we didn't get the grace that was offered in verse 11. Verse 12 is vital. Spurgeon puts it this way. Thus you see that grace has its own disciples. Are you a disciple of the grace of God? Did you ever come and submit yourself to it? It's like the song we sang. We don't struggle to be free, but we are free to struggle. I love that line. That's really cool. We don't struggle to be free. We're not fighting to get saved. We're not hoping that maybe we're good enough for grace. We receive grace. And out of that, man, out of that begins the desire to live righteously and godly and and denying ungodliness and worldly desires. Now I want to live this way. I want to be holy. Have you accepted the grace brought by Jesus? Because acceptance is much more than just blurting out a yes. Yes, Lord, I come to you. Yes, Lord. Listen, that is a yes that affects the deepest part of your life. It's a yes that changes the heart in such a way that now the the heart is pumping out something that affects our moral and ethical behavior. It alters us. This is a yes that accepts the sanctifying, life-changing work of grace in the spirit, in the soul, and in the body. A yes that causes a person to love God more than this world. I love God more than this life. I love Jesus more than my own desires. It is a fair question to ask. What do you love more? Who do you love more? Are you in love with God? Or are you in love with your own life? Don't answer with your mouth. Answer with your life. 1 John 2.15 Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 1 John 2.17 The world is passing away, and its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. That's verse 12. It's doing the will of God. But, verse 12 does come after verse 11, which proclaims the grace of God. It's always grace first. 
always grace and then moral and ethical behavior that flows out of that doctrine. Verse uh, 13 tells us not only now how to accept it, but how to expect it. Are you expecting it? Well, here's how. Verse 13, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. Is Jesus God? Well, you just heard it right there. He is our great God and Savior. Now, I believe Paul is describing two aspects, two clear aspects of the second coming, of the return of Christ. We've talked about this a lot recently. That first, he describes what is called the blessed hope. That, I believe, is speaking of the rapture of the church. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 18. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and 52. And multiple other verses in the Bible. But I believe the blessed hope speaks of the rapture of the church and, he says, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. We are expecting something that is imminent and we don't know the day or the hour and we're expecting something that is eternal when Jesus Christ returns in person and sets foot on the Mount of Olives. We know we will go home to be with Him. We know we will return with Him when He returns in that second coming. And there are two aspects of this. And if you're unclear on that teaching, or, or, or maybe you disagree, or you don't think that's what the Bible teaches, I encourage you to go back to our studies the last few weeks. There are four in a row about the rapture of the church. And we just look at what the Scriptures have to say about that. You make that determination looking at the truth of God's Word. But the point is this. We are to be a people looking for Jesus. Looking for Jesus. We live with that expectation. And as we expect His coming, well, we've talked about this, it purifies us. So not only does the grace, the doctrine of the grace of God, not only does that change our moral and ethical behavior, but as we expect Jesus, the doctrine of His second coming affects our moral and ethical behavior because it purifies us even as He is pure. 1 John chapter 3, verse 3. Everyone who has this hope fixed on Him, that is the hope of His return, purifies Himself just as Jesus is pure. So again, we have another example. Doctrine. The doctrine of grace uh, affecting our morality. The doctrine of the imminent return of Jesus affecting our ethical choices. The foundation, the framework is strong such that our behavior and our morality has a basis that is worth holding on to. So how to accept it, we see, and how to expect it, finally, how to perfect it. Or perhaps how to be perfected by this doctrine of grace. Verse 14. Who gave Himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession, zealous for good deeds. This is grace full circle. I love it. He died to redeem us. So He did the changing, cleansing work. We'll see more of that in just a moment. But He not only died to redeem us, He died to purify us, which becomes obvious in the degree to which I become now zealous for good deeds. Now, my moral and ethical behavior, it it just flows. Because I understand the doctrine of grace. Because I get grace. And as that doctrine is clear to me, so my behavior changes. 
Deuteronomy 16.18 says, The Lord has today declared to you to be His people a treasured possession as He promised you that you should keep all His commandments. Here's what the people of Israel misunderstood. Not all of them, but many of them. Is that they were first a treasured people so that they could keep His commandments. They forgot about the treasured part. And they went straight to the commandments and straight to the 613 laws of Torah and straight to the keeping of these laws and trying to be righteous by the doing of the law, missing that they were treasured. Missing the foundation of those commands. And that's why the commands themselves could not work for eternal life. They didn't realize the treasuring of God. This is what Wilberforce was talking about. Doctrine ignored, therefore not translating into moral proclivity. Grace makes all the difference. Grace makes all the difference. I can't say that enough. I know I've said it a lot. But if you want to be one who, as Paul writes, is zealous for good deeds, don't focus on being zealous for good deeds. Focus on the goodness of God in the grace of Jesus Christ. Because the more focused I am on His gracious forgiveness and redemption and restoration, the more my deeds flow out of that. And that is the way it truly works. The doctrine of grace produces moral behavior. Now, are you with me? Yes? Alright. Look at Titus 3, verse 14. At the end of the book... We talked about this midweek. Paul writes, Our people must also learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. We talked about how this is what He does in us and through us. The good deeds to meet pressing needs. How do you know if a need is pressing or not? He tells you. How do I know if I should respond here or there or over here? You do what He tells you to do. You listen to the Lord and you look at what is good in His sight. And Jesus said, John 15.5, I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in Me and I in Him, He bears much fruit. For apart from Me you can do nothing. So I accept His offer. I expect His coming and He perfects His grace in me and thus we have the oxygenation of the hope of eternal life. Now the blood is back in the body. Well, not quite. Actually, we're going to go to one more chamber, the second ventricle. Chapter 3, verse 4. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And listen, as with chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, chapter 3, verses 4 through 7, one sentence. So these two great doctrines are each one sentence. The first being, in chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, the doctrine of grace. But now, in chapter 3, verses 4 through 7, it's not grace that's the subject, it is mercy. The doctrine of the mercy of God. What's the difference? Well, let's figure that out. 
verse 4 again, when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what we do deserve. Understand, that's that's an important distinction. Grace is getting what we absolutely don't deserve, nor could we ever deserve. And mercy is not getting what we all know we do deserve. Both of these depict God's kindness, and both appeared, note this, in person. In person. Back in verse 11, the grace of God has appeared, he says. And down here in verses 4 and 5, the kindness of our God and Savior and His love for mankind appeared according to His mercy. Grace and mercy are a person who showed more grace, more mercy, more kindness in all of history than Jesus Christ. Anybody more kind that you can even think of than Jesus who bounced children on his knee, who showed a respect and an honor to women unlike any rabbi of his day, who socialized with the most societal outcasts, who healed the sick and the infirm, Sabbath or not, regardless of the impact on his own reputation, who saved us. He saved us. The doctrine of salvation. Now, question here. What does it mean to be saved? Have you ever stopped in your Christianity, and I'm talking to Christians on this one, have you ever stopped in your Christianity long enough to to think about what does it even mean to say I'm saved? Or to say to a non-believer, you need to get saved. What does that mean? What do you mean I need to get saved? Well, I just had McDonald's for lunch. Okay, I understand. I need some salvation. (laughs) What are we talking about literally? Being saved is is a very simple thing, but in much of Christianity, it's become a past event. Oh yeah, I got saved back in 74. I got saved, you know, back when I was a kid. I got saved as a teenager at church, so we got saved. Not understanding that salvation means you have been delivered from and delivered to. If someone wants to know what it means to be saved, and mark this, because this ought to be something that as Christians you can tell a non-Christian, let me explain what salvation means. Why does a person need to be saved? Listen, you are delivered from death. You are delivered to eternal life. That's the kind of the basic promise there. But it's more. You are delivered from condemnation. Now someone might react to that a little bit. Condemnation. Who's condemning me? Well, don't you condemn yourself. Do you need anybody to condemn you every time you do something stupid? Every time you hurt someone and you know you did? Every time you sin or you do wrong or you violate some moral principle that at least even by conscience you have a sense that wasn't the right thing to do. That was a terrible way to treat that person. I messed up this part of my life. I messed up that person's life. The condemnation is there. In fact, the Bible tells us your own sin will condemn you. And so people know, you want to be delivered from that? See, psychology calls it shame and guilt. And the answer of psychology, by the way, to getting rid of shame and guilt is just get rid of it, man. Okay. Yeah, just be guilt-free. In other words, no morality. Just do whatever and don't have feelings about it. And we sear the conscience. 
No morality at all. No, you're delivered from guilt and shame to justification. Having been made right by Jesus and not by yourself. Delivered from that and to forgiveness and redemption. Death to life, condemnation to justification, guilt and shame to forgiveness and redemption. I have been and I am saved. The doctrine of salvation is such a basic truth. And He saved us, it says, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy. And you can circle and highlight, put little stars or hearts or whatever you want around the word mercy in your Bible. The doctrine of mercy is huge. And it's in large part why people reject the Gospel. What? What do you mean? You see, mercy tells us, along with grace, that this is something that cannot be earned. What I deserve is not what I'm getting. And people think, you know, if I can get to heaven based on my good works and get a little credit along the way, that's cool. You know, I'll show up and I'll be in line. I'll have on, you know, a new shirt and look around. Yeah, yeah, I got here. Hey, you got here. Oh, I didn't think you'd get here. You know, (laughs) counting all my goods, you know, and it doesn't work. It doesn't work. None is righteous. No, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and our human flesh doesn't like that. Because I can't get credit for getting myself home. I I, I can't just be the good person. Tell someone we must be completely dependent on God's grace or worse, on His mercy and that runs head to head against the self-made man or woman. Remember, it is the grace and the mercy, those two doctrines, that oxygenate the blood to strengthen our moral behavior. It's not the other way around. You know, the blood doesn't get oxygenated out in the body. It loses out in the body. It has to come to the heart to be strengthened again and to be, to be innervated again. So we come back again and again as a Christian throughout my life, 53 years, I have come back over and over to the doctrines of grace and mercy and salvation. I need to hear this. I need my blood refreshed again by the blood of the only one who can refresh me. And that is Jesus Christ. There is no hope of eternal life in my good deeds. Period. And that goes, you know, from saving the planet. Well, let's, let's have, and there are people who live this way, and, and I, I actually mean this with respect, environmental concerns. We gotta deal with greenhouse gases. Kill the cows, you know, I don't know what. But then you got a problem with the animal cruelty people. Who, hey, William Wilberforce championed stopping cruelty to animals. A follower of Jesus Christ would do that, would recognize God's gift of even the creation around us and want to treat things as good stewards. So I get that. But in thinking that if I can save the animals, I can save myself. If I can save the earth, I have done a good thing. If I can offer some kind of financial support to some good behavior or good deeds or good action in the world, well then I've done a little better. And now the scales, maybe they'll balance a little more in my favor. It doesn't work. You can do all the goodness in the world and not be good enough. 
You can coexist insipidly with all manner of human belief and behavior, tolerating everything, and that will not save you. We are only saved according to His mercy and His grace. And that is it. And how does He achieve this act of mercy? Oh, it's beautiful. By the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. I want you to understand this regeneration and this renewing. What does that mean? This is a holy spiritual washing. This is a work of the Spirit of God as He declares the regeneration and the renewing are by the Holy Spirit. Some have divided this. Some have said the washing of regeneration is baptism and then you get the renewing of the Holy Spirit. Let me explain very clearly the regeneration and the renewal are all by the Holy Spirit. This is His work. This is what He does. I am not opposed to baptism as you can tell by our baptistry and by our call to people to get baptized. Man, be immersed. Come before the Lord and and get dunked in the name of Jesus. But understand this. To stop at baptism is to miss the profound point of baptism. If we say, well, that's the washing of regeneration, well, then we better get some water cleaners in there because if you look in that tank recently... No, the washing of regeneration and renewal is all the work of the Spirit. To stop at baptism misses this. To stop at the communion table misses this. That both the communion and the waters of baptism represent the washing of regeneration and renewing that the Holy Spirit does at a much deeper spiritual level without which we would not be saved. It's His work that saves us. Not our deeds. Not even going into the water. Not even taking communion faithfully every Sunday. Neither of those will save you. It's what He has done that those things represent that then saves us. I love what Alistair Begg said. He says, baptism... I wish I could say it with his accent, Scottish accent. Baptism portrays... I can't do it. (laughs) Baptism portrays what Christ's blood performs. That's great. That's it. Baptism portrays what Christ's blood performs, the washing of renewal and regeneration. Both, it's a work of the Holy Spirit. It is all a Holy Spiritual work. And by the way, this is the only time in the entire letter where the Holy Spirit's even mentioned. Right here. At the heart of the doctrine that Paul is handing down. Regeneration is palingenesia. Regeneration literally is translated reproduction. The washing of reproduction. That is the washing of new birth. It is not the waters of baptism. It is the living water of the Holy Spirit that brings about new birth. Jesus said in John chapter 3, verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Born again, that's it. Truly, truly, I say to you, he says in John 3, 5, unless one is born of water, physical birth, and the Spirit, spiritual birth, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. The washing of reproduction and renewal, that word, 
literally is translated renovation. Or a complete change for the better. The kind of renovation he's talking about is not just redoing the downstairs bathroom. It's tearing down the entire house and rebuilding on the foundation of Jesus Christ. A 100% brand new, spanking clean regeneration. (laughs) Spanking clean. That's funny because we're talking about a new birth. (laughs) This is all done again by the Holy Spirit mentioned one time in the letter and right here in the middle of the mercy of God. Wonderful. Holy spiritual washing. Far more profound than the outward picture of baptism. It is a spiritually eternal act of God as first promised to Israel in the time of their captivity. Did you know that? The washing of regeneration and renewal was promised long before. As the people of Israel sat in Babylonian captivity, God said, Ezekiel, I want you to tell them this. Ezekiel 36, verse 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe all my ordinances. Did you get that? There it is again, the doctrine before the morality. I'll put my spirit in you and then... You'll keep my commandments. It never works the other way. I'll keep His commandments and get His Spirit. won't work. It won't work. The hope of eternal life, by His grace, by His mercy, and in His Spirit, through Jesus Christ, our Savior, and verse 6 continuing, says, so that, verse 7, so that, being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. It's not just the hope of eternal life. It's the heirs of eternal life. Do you see now, do you understand why morality must be supported by doctrine? Why we have to be intentional about teaching the great doctrines of Scripture in the church that our morality has substance and reason? That without these truths as the foundation of faith and the bulwark of all of our behavior, all of our morality crumbles in on itself. Falls apart. But now, the rich oxygenated blood of these eternal truths comes flooding back into the body and we realize we not only have the hope of eternal life, but we are now the heirs of eternal life according to this hope. Let's stand up together. In Peter's first letter, chapter 1, verse 3, he writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away reserved in heaven for you, the hope of eternal life, I ask you this morning, how's your heart? How is your heart for these things? Father, we stand before You. And we recognize that You are 
the Almighty God, that you are eternally existent. The I Am. You have always been, you are now, and you will always be. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. Father, we are so thankful to You for the great doctrines of Scripture. For the truths of these things. What You have poured out, not only this morning, but what You have laid out from Genesis to Revelation. That there would be substance to our faith. Lord, and the foundation of Christ on whom we stand. And all of the ethics and all the morality and all the righteousness, Lord, it's because of what You've done. And it is held up by the strength of these truths proclaimed across eternity and into this history. And we stand this morning as recipients of these profound truths. And we stand, Lord, as people in desperate need of Your grace and Your mercy. Your grace which we cannot earn. Your mercy which we do not deserve. But You through Jesus Christ have given both. Praise Your name, Lord. And Father, I ask, as we seek to worship You more, that in this time of worship, our hearts would have an oxygenated response. That we would breathe in Your Spirit and hear Your truth and respond as You are calling us. And Father, Christians among us would step forward and say, I have not been living my behavior based on what I know to be true. And that we would repent and turn to You and desire to live for You godly and righteously in this age. Father, I pray that Your Spirit would move among us this morning and draw those who have yet to believe in You. Those who have not made a claim on the name of Jesus for salvation. Who have not believed that He died and rose again. Father, may salvation come into this house today and be heard by those who will receive. We thank You for founding and grounding us in these things. In Jesus' name, Amen. So if you would come, if you need prayer for anything, if you want to give your life to Jesus, if you want to be baptized, please come. We'll be at all four tables. Let's worship together.